Over the coming decades, Canadian taxpayers are going to spend tens of billions of dollars on the purchase of equipment for the Canadian forces. But the process, known as military procurement, has a reputation for inefficiency, waste and delay. But is that reputation deserved? Today we're going to talk to the man who is responsible for spending those billions of dollars on everything from boots to jets to ships such as the Canadian surface combatant. I'm David Puglesi. This is Defence Watch. We're speaking with Pat Finn, the Assistant Deputy Minister of Materiel at the Department of National Defence. Welcome, Pat. Oh, thanks very much for having me. So we hear a lot about procurement. Uh, you know, we see it in the headlines and such. And there's this general, general sense that procurement is, you know, pardon my language, but screwed up. What's your response to that? And you probably heard that type of thing before. Yes, I have. And I often hear this, that it's, that it's broken. Mm-hmm. Um, I, not surprisingly, I have a different view around that. And it's partially from where I sit and the time I've spent at Defence, uh, coming up to four decades. And I, I see it as working. It's not perfect, and maybe I can explain that. But I see it as working. I see it as delivering uh, the equipment, the, the material, the spare parts. And, and I say that because I, I see it sort of the success and operations of Canadian Armed Forces, be it in Mali or Latvia or everywhere in the world or domestic operations or training. None of that would actually occur uh, without, without procurement working, bringing the material, the equipment that they need. What it isn't is that it's not as efficient as it needs to be. And certainly we've got more work to do there and we continue to do it to make sure we're more timely, to make sure we're, we're, we're getting value for money and doing all the things that we need to do. So I view it as working. I view it as not as efficient and it's as, as it should be. Like in, in an average year, how many contracts would you, would you pump out there and, and you know, how much would you be spending? Yeah, so on an average year, uh, on, on the dollar side, we do about $6 billion of, of material acquisition. Now, that can be new equipment, that can be repair, spare parts, different things that we do, consumables, so rations, ammunition. We do the whole spectrum, so about $6 billion a year. Uh, at any given time, we have over 10,000 contracts under management. So they may not all be new that year. A lot of them are multi-year contracts. But it's a fairly significant undertaking. So uh, the organization that I work in is about 5,000 people. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we work with other departments around town to pull all this together. Yeah. I mean, what, you know, in your long career, what's kind of the the strangest thing you've you've had to buy, you know? Like, I remember I did a story on the combat bra one time, right? You know, and I thought, that's interesting. How do you build a combat bra? I mean, what what have you kind of... Well, you're exactly right, and it's the whole spectrum. Uh, you know, things that are closer to people's bodies, as you say. We do uniforms as well, uh, undergarments. Yeah. We find ourselves writing, you know, messages that go out to the whole military on, on, on. Uh, we call it scale of issue. How many you can have on undergarments on different things. So uh, you're going. You you're only allowed X number of underwear per soldier. Could be, yeah, depending yeah. what it is, particularly if it's you know, as you say, combat related, uh, depending what it is. So we get into some odd things like that. 
some some rapid bits and pieces depending where we are in the world of support of things that we need to do. Uh, most days it is exciting and interesting because again we're supporting people all over the world and what we need to do. But I would say yeah, in that specific question, some of the clothing items at times can be uh, can be interesting and unusual. Yeah, and so I guess you know where journalists are focused on the big things like the the jets and the ships, but from the soldiers' point of view, it's what they're wearing on their feet or or underwear or backpack or whatever, right? I mean, is that the one that you get you know the most kind of pushback from the fields? Or I, I would say from inside the military, and and rightfully so. I, I mean, I spent thirty six years in uniform and sort of saw a lot of it firsthand, things like footwear, boots, you know, and if you, you get that wrong, I mean, it can have a real impact on an individual and on their operational effectiveness. And we've had different models, different approaches. Our allies have gone different ways. So we, we've stepped into an approach recently where we're looking at now letting the soldiers go out and, you know, and sailors and, and air personnel go out and actually acquire the boots that they want to acquire within certain reason, right. but basically getting them to go out uh, on, the, on, the, on the market and see what they want to acquire to try to do some of those things. But if you watch, you know, social media and those sort of things, that's what you'll see is, you know, what, what causes, you know, day-to-day discomfort is obviously going to right. be something in, in people's minds. Yeah, that's the pushback you're getting the most, right? And rightfully so. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So some of the big programs, what do you think the delay is? And that seems to be the main beef, uh, you know, among a lot of people is there's delays. Is it just the bureaucracy or... Well, it can be. I think for us, the big thing that we've learned, and we're putting a lot of time into kind of training and developing people with the skills and the knowledge to do it, um, a, a lot of what we see around both schedule and budgets is, is how we set them out from the outset. So it can be that we've just set up an unrealistic expectation of when this could be done. You know, we've done it internally, or it's not even been done with my organization. It's been done on the people who are looking at the the different options of how we proceed things and say, well, we're going to go out and acquire a new ship and we're going to get it done in 36 months. Mm-hmm. Well, that's probably unrealistic anywhere in the world, but you've set that expectation. And then as you go through the different engagements, you talk to industry, you speak to the engineers, we look at the design, it's unrealistic. Mm-hmm. So as we've done the defense policy and different things, it's one of the things we've really worked on. It's how we budget up front and we've gone back to a kind of core of of costing experts who do nothing but that, mm-hmm. and we're doing similar work on the schedule side. So, so a lot of it is we create the wrong expectation from the outset, yeah. and then we see delay, delay, delay to just bring it into realism. Beyond that, it can be bureaucracy approvals. It can be you know industry's capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you know we often forget that uh, the it's not like a car that they're kind of built and sitting in the showroom for us to show up. Mm-hmm. And probably the best performing equipment is from manufacturers who have a lot of people looking for their product. Yeah. So, you know, we, we run a competition, we select somebody, they turn around and say, well, our order book is full for three and a half years, so that's when we'll start delivering to you. It's really a complex system. It's, it's low volume, high complexity equipment, and a whole bunch of players at play. What we're trying to do is to do more work to, you know, engage industry earlier in more detail so we can actually 
put realism on the table from the outset. But what about like, for instance, the, you know, the Arctic Rangers, uh, Canadian Rangers, you know, you're getting a new rifle. Their current rifle is a Lee Enfield from World War II. Uh, you've selected a, you know, a specific rifle. Uh, the, and those rifles are on the, uh, on, in the gun stores now, you know, Canadians can buy them. They're very expensive, but uh, you know, you're still seeing kind of the, the Rangers are waiting for, for their rifles, right? It's almost like you could drive down to, uh, the sporting goods store and, and buy a couple. What what's with that, or is it just the the bureaucracy is slow turning? No, and I think that's a really great example. So so a couple of things. You know, you're right. The Lee Enfield. In fact, it's even before World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reason why the Lee Enfield persisted as the weapon for so long is it was actually really simple, mm-hmm. functioned really really well in the cold, and you could bring it in the in the high Arctic, you know. Yeah. So we often think about, you know, the artifact, it's a gun, it's an aircraft, whatever. But if you don't have the ammunition, the spare parts, the maintenance, the training, mm-hmm. sure you can get people, you know, uh, a rifle really quickly, but you say, sorry, that you know, you can't have the bullets yet because you're not certified, or we can't get you the bullets. Right. The version that we've uh, we've produced, you it, it is somewhat different, and I mean, not surprisingly, it's you know for the kind of application than what you can gun, go to a gun store and purchase. Mm-hmm. You know, the it is going to have to perform not only in austere c- c- conditions, but with like little support and little supply. So mm-hmm. the you know the Ranger patrols in the high, high north can't go back to the gun store in a major city and get the spare parts. Yeah. So for us, it's making sure that when we deploy anything, uh, in the sense of we bring it into service and we give it to, in this case, the Rangers, well, we give them the rifle, the spare parts are there, the ammunition is there, they're trained, they're safe, they can, they can tear it down, put it back together. Often it's all those things. Like we can get the rifles quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like some cases we can get the ships quickly or that we can get aircraft quicker, mm-hmm. but we're not set up to to, to, to to train the pilots and the maintainers and all those sort of things. So that's part of it. Again, I often use the, you know, the car metaphor. You know, you buy a car, you bring it back to the dealership. Well, at some point, the mechanics in the dealership have been trained for the updated model. We need to make sure that that all happens. So when it comes into service, it's actually operational. Yeah. I mean, and some of the, the length of time on these things, like the Canadian surface combatant, you know, one of the last ones will be coming off the, the line in 2040. Well, both you and I, I guarantee, will be in an old age home by then, right? So maybe you'll watch it on your space TV or something like that and, you know, high five. But it's, it really is a long period of time. It, it is, and that's a, that's a great example, I think, at the other end of the spectrum from kind of rifles and the sense of complexity. Mm-hmm. Not only is it come out close to 2040, but the ships will be in service in 2070. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the first ship that we'll produce because of technology and threats and changes we need to make, the, you know, the, the, the design and the equipment that gets installed will have to evolve and iterate. So you're also producing it with, you know, in our speak, we call it margins, you know, call it space and, and weight and additional power and additional cooling. So as the threat changes and the environment it has to operate in changes, you can make changes to the ship, to the airplane. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we, we, we build them to be greener. We build them to be more fuel efficient. We build them to try to drive down through life costs. So what could seem is, you know, frustratingly long time up front, and I share the frustration, I assure you, but to make sure we get the right outcome. So for the next 50 years, mm-hmm. 
it's operational, you know, we have the spare parts, we can do things, becomes a critical part of what we need to do. But how is your thinking, for instance, how do you think 50 years in advance what we need in a ship, right? I mean, that's... Yeah, I, so I would say from, <laughs> from experience and having been a, a maritime engineer, I kind of lived this a lot. Mm-hmm. This is where, um, so we, we can't, we don't know. We, we know it'll be computers and different things and systems. So even if you look back 50 years of, you know, the changes that occurred on, on previous classes of ships in Canada or elsewhere in the world, it's not all predictable. Mm-hmm. But then having, again, this thing is just to make sure you have the space for growth, you know, that you've sort of set it up with the, with the thought that, well, we're going to install more systems probably. So we need to make sure when we think about the power generation, we have, we have space for additional things to be plugged in. We have additional cooling, additional heating, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. We have space and weight, we call it, in the ship to take it on. So that's what we're trying to create is, uh, you know, it's like saying, okay, I think, you know, I'm going to grow my family and I buy a new house. Well, I may not have kids now, but I'm going to have kids. Well, I, there, there needs to be obviously bedrooms to put them in. Yeah. So maybe I'm buying a house with more bedrooms than I need today, but I'm thinking of what's going to happen as I evolve. Yeah. It's somewhat the same thing. It's hard to predict but at least create the, we would call it the enablers, the things that you do to allow you to make decisions later. Yeah. So this surface combat we're talking about is $60 billion. I think it's the largest single purchase ever made in the history, in the history of Canada. And, you know, so when a, when a politician has a $15 glass of orange juice, you know, people freak out. But you're dealing with $60 billion. Like, how do you get your head wrapped around, you know, kind of coordinating that? Well, um, and this is where, you know, we look to allies, we cooperate a lot. Mm-hmm. So we make sure we get a good sense of what's happening in industry and what our allies are doing. There will be changes because of Canada's environment where we operate. You know, the North Atlantic is very different than the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. But we always try to be careful that we're not starting from zero. So when we look at budgets and other things, we get a sense of what's out there, this surface combatant uh, project that you're talking about. We were certainly looking for a degree of maturity of design, you know, what's being built, kind of what's going on. So we're not starting from zero. So that's a big piece of it. Um, to some extent, uh, it can simplify it insofar as you're saying, well, in the end, if you've decided that you're going to have kind of a warship, like a frigate destroyer type of thing, and you look around the world, what our allies are all building, they're probably, give or take 10 or 15%, around $2 billion a copy. Mm-hmm. So. You you instantly find yourself there very quickly to say, well, 15 combatants in today's dollars, and again, as you said, we're going to build this over time, mm. this is the kind of budget you talk about. And and what we do, so the $60 billion, people often think, you know, we're saying $4 billion a ship. Um, the approach in Canada, we try to bring everything in that it costs to bring something into service. So I mentioned the training, the ammunition, the spare parts. For the ships, it's the same thing. What are the spare parts? What's the ammunition? What's the jetty? Mm-hmm. What are the trainers and training? Plus, we put money in there for contingency. If we're buying stuff uh, overseas, you know, we have to be careful about foreign exchange risk. Mm-hmm. So we build all that in, um, have some experience at building it in now. Uh, we're cautious about it. So when we did, when we updated the defense policy, it's why we recosted everything. And we came out with the 60 billion, 56 to 60 for ships. It's a more realistic number around 15 warships in this day and age. And as you 
talk to all of our allies, you'd, you'd find that they're dealing with similar numbers. Yeah. And you're going to be purchasing um, a, a new fighter jets for Canada. And again, that kind of those same timelines, right, where they're going to be still operating in 2050 or whatever. But, you know, are you also looking at when you're doing that, that maybe by 2050, there's going to be, you know, uh, drones, uh, you know, more advanced flying the skies. You know, why do we even need fighter jets? I mean, does that come into your thinking? It, it 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 comes into the department's thinking. Uh, I have to say, I have colleagues uh, in, in an area that we call force development mm-hmm. who look at all that. They look at the future security environment. They look at what's happening, at technology, what's out there. So it factors in. Um, I, I, I think, though, what we often find is you've got to be very careful about kind of technology and how quickly it advances because there's always. You know, it's about to arrive, it's about to be here. You know, if you talk to people about quantum computing and what's happening, we'll really break through in so many areas, but we've been talking about its breakthrough for some time now. So those things factor in. Uh, I think in the in the military context, though, you kind of watch the evolution, you know, uh, you know and we, we look at, you know, Jane's Defense Weekly and other things that actually report on, you know, the work that you used to do in Navy News and that, you know, talking about a lot of things. So we watch those to say, okay, what are the trends? Mm-hmm. But I think it's we find it's also a little bit dangerous to say, well, we won't invest, we won't do something because you know the next big change, the next trend is like ten years away, so we'll wait. Mm-hmm. Well, now you've your equipment you have is ten years older, the change doesn't occur. So we we try to to kind of maintain pace. We try to maintain certainly pace with allies uh, by our defense policy. Try to maintain what we would call an operational advantage over the threats. It does factor in what we do, but we're always kind of careful. Mm-hmm. I mean, the equipment you're buying, uh, you know, like a, a light armored vehicle, for instance, is is no longer just a, an armored hull on wheels, right? I mean, a, a new generation of soldiers is, uh, you know, it's full of computer gear and, and that type of thing. Like, is, so your your purchasing is 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 far advanced. I mean, you know. It is, and you know, and as you've asked about some of the bureaucracy, you know, again, because mm-hmm. of that, that, that speed of how quickly we do things, uh, certainly high technology computerized. We have a lot of conversations about how quickly we do things. You know, do we wind up with kind of longer term contracts with, with large companies that actually themselves can mm-hmm. continue to advance the technology? But you're right, we have projects. Uh, an integrated soldier system project yeah. where it's exactly as you say, it's completely the digitized soldier. And you're right. I mean, I, I have for a long time described uh, uh, what makes a warship, a, a combat ship, different than other ships. You know, other ships, it really is about the hull and the propulsion, and they'll have some radars and some different things on board. A warship is a combat system. It's it's the sensors and the weapons mm-hmm. that happens to be wrapped in a hull. Yeah. It's in this case it's wrapped in a hull over there, it's wrapped in an airplane and as you've indicated, it's wrapped in an armored vehicle. Yeah. You know, the the vehicles that now uh, carry our troops uh, into their missions and their operations, highly sophisticated, you know, network with all the dismounted soldiers. And we've just gone through a very large process. We've pretty much replaced or upgraded all of the combat vehicles for the Army. Mm-hmm. And it's, as you mentioned, it comes down to the individual soldier as well. So you used to carry a 20-pound radio on your back. And now, I mean, one of your most recent purchases is like an 
iPhone that's, I guess, similar to an iPhone that's super hardened, and uh, the soldier just carries it on his or her her, uh, sleeve or in their pocket, right? Absolutely right, and and uh, and and trying to make sure, you know, as we talked about uniforms, that actually the troops and in, in the in the equipment we give them, like you know the, the you know the the backpack and the webbing and that sort of stuff, that they configure it, you know, for for what works for them. You know, mm-hmm. are they left-handed? Are they right-handed? What do they do? What do they want to do? Is it special forces? Are they are they in vehicles or off vehicles? Trying to bring that agility to, to, to play. I mean, it, it, it creates other complexities around networking and what we need to do. Mm-hmm. But it's the reality of you know the modern the modern soldier and you know modern warfare. I mean, it's why we are also a lot more involved. Again, a bit more of my colleagues than myself, but in in space based projects, mm-hmm. in cyber cyber defense and cybersecurity, because that is absolutely at the root of any modern military of what you need to do. Mm-hmm. What do you think uh, would be the the toughest project that you worked on? Uh, so there have been there have been several. Uh, I would say they all they all have their issues, and I often talk about all of our projects. When people say to me, you know, it's kind of broken, I read things mm-hmm. in the in the paper all the time. I'll often say, well. At any given time, I have over 300 projects underway. Mm-hmm. You know, one of them is going to have an issue with uh, with different things at play. Um, the I would say the, the the most complex, and a lot of it is the money involved, and it's it's understandably taxpayers' money. Mm-hmm. So as we work on fighters, uh, a, a lot of iterations, a lot of work, a lot of play there, which which brings, I would say, you know, more scrutiny, understandably so. Mm-hmm. Ships as well. Um, I was uh, in submarines for a number of years and, and worked on submarine projects. You know, the introduction of the Victoria-class submarines, which, you know, came out of the UK. Mm-hmm. So though I would say th- those bigger ones, but there's a lot of small ones as well around, you know, ammunition and, and uh, you know, the, the food, the rations that we produce. Because at times, like the worldwide demand for these things suddenly becomes a problem. You know, when we were in Afghanistan with our allies, mm-hmm. all of a sudden there's a massive surge of all of us together. Mm-hmm. And so uh, availability of, of supply it could be availability of raw material that everybody's looking for at the same time. Mm-hmm. So uh, any given day, there's there's issues. I say to my poor project manager, sadly, if you're in my office, it's probably not for good news. <laughs> uh, and so if you don't see me a lot, you're probably doing well. Right. Uh, so it's a bit of, you know, kind of the nature of the work we do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, some of the thing, some of the comments that I've seen in the past from defense analysts, you know, they say, well, uh, Canada's equipment, you know, it's just not quite there. It's it's worn out. I mean, I think one defense analyst talked about the leopards being claptrap, and I'm taking a look at some of the equipment you've got, and you've got some of the best. Some of the most up-to-date. I mean, your Leopard tank, for instance, uh, Canadian Force Leopard tank, is one of the most modern in the world, right? I mean, is there um, a, a disconnect there that, that people keep thinking that Canada's got, uh, I guess, lousy equipment? I, I Certainly, I think uh, people to say if it's, you know, a lousy equipment, I think that would be something that I would say is just not the case. Yeah. Uh, uh, that we continue to invest. Now, like it or not, for us or all of our allies, you know, as you invest and move on to the next thing, the equipment ages, you know, you're, you're, you're always going to have certain fleets that you're a little bit behind, you know, trying to catch up. But importantly today, you know, we had our, our last set of destroyers, you know, when we disposed of them, they were almost 45 years old, mm-hmm. except that all the weapons and sensors had been replaced, you know, in the and last upgraded 15 years. And, yeah, yeah. So all of a sudden you got, you know, you got a ship or a truck or a plane 
what does it bring, and and what are the ca- people capable of doing with it? Mm-hmm. I mean, reputationally, Canadian military, really, really high reputation for level of training, level of knowledge. So even when we've had 50-year-old aircraft, like the Sea Kings or the Buffaloes, the pilots and the air crew, and I've I've seen them operate at sea, mm-hmm. are, are second to none in mm-hmm. what they do and can achieve. So we're always investing in this stuff. There are areas that, you know, that starts to be a bit dated as the threat changes, but that's, you know, the, the, the solution forward is not always obvious and we work across the board to make sure everything we send out is safe, but also make sure that the KNR Forces members are oper- operationally effective in what they do. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay, that's uh, Assistant Deputy Minister Pat Finn, uh, Assistant Deputy Minister for Materiel. Pat, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Defence Watch. I'm Dave Puglazing. If you'd like to share your comments or suggestions for future podcasts, email me at dpugliese at postmedia.com. If you'd like to see the digital version of Defence Watch, go to the Ottawa Citizens website. Defence Watch has been produced by Post Media. Sound editing by Mina Gamry. Our senior editor is Drake Fenton. Our editor-in-chief is Michelle Richardson. Special thanks to Keith Bennell. Thanks for listening.